welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Well, if you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, we're in Matthew 27 today. Matthew 27. About 10 years ago, there was a movie that came out called The Hunger Games. How many of you have seen The Hunger Games? Let me see your hands. Okay, good. This will work. If you haven't, you need to. It's a pretty good movie. Let me tell you about this movie. So this movie takes place in a fictional country after a failed revolution. In the wake of this revolution, the government has split the country into 12 different districts. And each year on the eve of the revolution or the anniversary of the revolution, they would have something called the Hunger Games, which is gladiator games, in order to commemorate how the government had overcome this revolution. Now, for these Hunger Games, they asked for every district to give two gladiators to this game. Most certain, or most of the time, these gladiators would be teenagers. They were called tributes. Well, the story follows a girl called Katniss Everdeen. Her picture is coming up here, and she is from District 12. And the movie begins preparing for what they call the reaping, because people don't generally volunteer to go to the gladiator games they would do this by lottery and in this lottery they would put everybody's name in a jar and they would draw out the names of a man or a girl and a boy that would go to represent their district in the hunger games likely not coming back so there's this moment in the movie where all of the teenagers are gathered around and they're waiting for the name to be drawn out of the uh, out of the jar and as they pull the name out the lady pulls the name out and she reads the name the name is primrose everdeen that would be katniss's little sister and it's just this moment of shock in the movie Here's this 11-year-old girl probably being summoned to her death, and everybody kind of spreads out around her. And in shock, she begins to walk up to the stage to accept her fate. Everybody knows what this means. No 11-year-old survives the Hunger Games. No, nobody expects this girl to come back. And as she nears the stage in silence as her parents cry, from the back of the crowd, you hear a voice cry out, I volunteer as tribute. I volunteer to go to the Hunger Games in her place. It was Primrose's older sister, Katniss. And for the rest of this movie, it follows the consequences of that action. Katniss Everdeen is a powerful, powerful character, full of love and passion, trying to survive this horrible situation that she's been put in. And this, this movie and this story and this character resonated with us as Americans. It's not even just a movie, it was a book. The book has sold over 100 million copies worldwide. At the box office, The Hunger Games grossed $694 million. It is the 21st all-time film franchise in the history of movies ever. It's in the ranks with like Indiana Jones. It's in the ranks with Jaws. It's 20 spots ahead, ahead of Back to the Future, which is the best movie franchise ever, if you didn't know that. So there's this, this something about this movie that, that we were drawn to as a society. Why were we drawn to this, this character of Katniss Everdeen? Why were we drawn to this movie about her going to the Hunger Games in the place of her sister? What is it that draws us to stories about heroes with that? I think that we sense a power in people who sacrifice themselves to protect the vulnerable. And the reason for that is we all feel vulnerable, don't we? 
Like nobody's going to get up here and tell you what we're worried about. But at the end of the day, we all feel vulnerable for some reason. Deep down, deep down, we all know that there's a situation or an instance where we can't protect ourselves. Deep down, we have this urge to be rescued. Deep down, we desire for there to be heroes in the world who protect us. Well, why is that? Because deep down, deep down, we know that we can't protect ourselves. Deep down, we know that we need rescue. And I believe that that deep down understanding of needing rescue comes from what I'm calling the dilemma. So if you weren't here last week, let me explain the dilemma to you. We, we studied in Genesis chapter 3 the story of original sin. And what we found is that humankind has got themselves in a dilemma, a situation that we can't fix and that we can't get out of because of our sin where we disobeyed God. And last week, just as a reminder, we talked about sin, not just what sin is, but what is the character of sin? What does sin look like in our lives? What does sin um, cause us to do? So I want to remind you of our points last week because we're going to see these come up in the stories this week. So sin is disobeying God's commands. Sin comes with consequences. Sin challenges absolute truth. Sin is a result of questioning God's goodness. Sin is appeasing to our sense of self. Sin demands companions in sin. Sin brings shame into our lives. And sin separates us from God. Very, very, very easily put, sin brings us into death. Every last one of us are born already dead. We, we live in a world of spiritual death and we move towards the eventual time where we will experience physical death. In this, I think that our life is a lot like that movie, The Hunger Games. A lot like Primrose Everdeen. She knows what's about to happen. She's not yet dead yet, but she's walking. Before somebody calls out, I will take her place. She's walking towards what she knows is certain death. And each and every last one of us in here, in our lives, is we are walking towards certain death. And what we need to hear, what we need to hear is somebody cry out in our place, I volunteer's tribute. I volunteer to take Brian's place. I volunteer to take their punishment upon me. And that brings us to the story of Jesus. What we celebrate at Easter is Jesus and what he did for us and who he is. When Jesus stands in our place and says, I will take their place, I will take their death. So if you're not familiar with Jesus, let me introduce you to him. He's, he's pretty awesome, right? Somebody better say amen to that one. I can't say Jesus is awesome and you guys still be asleep. Goodness. But let me introduce you to Jesus. So Jesus, if you want to talk about who he is, he is God in human form. He is God come into a body like ours to be with us. And that means that he has all of the attributes of humanity. And I love to think about the weakness of Jesus in a human body. Jesus got hungry. Jesus tummy growled. I love this. Jesus got, Jesus got hangry. You guys know what hangry is? Hangry is when you have it. Some of you guys are looking at your significant others like you're hangry. Like hangry is when you're hungry and it affects your mood. Uh, Jesus got hangry. There's a story in the Bible where, where Jesus just about a, month, uh, a week before he's crucified. Jesus sees a fig tree and he's hungry and he walks over to it and there's no fig tree on it or there's no figs on it. And Jesus is like, okay, if you won't provide me figs, you will never provide figs for anybody. And the next day they walk back past that same that fig tree and all the disciples are like, Jesus, you killed it, right? Because Jesus was upset that it did not have figs for him. Uh, Jesus experienced sickness the way that you and I do. He dealt, dealt with the common cold and the stomach bug. Jesus, as a young kid, fell and scraped his knee and needed his mama to kiss his boo-boo. 
Jesus was human just like us. And what makes Jesus' ability to be special is that Jesus had the ability to be tempted by sin. As a human, he had all of the same desires that we do. He, he, could have, he could have broke away from what God had called him to. Satan even takes him to a place and tempts him and says, I will give you all of these things if you will just disobey God. But he didn't because Jesus being God in human form also had all of the attributes of God. Jesus was the only individual who has ever walked this earth for his entire life and actually lived life in life. You and I live life in death. That's, that's what we do. We, we, we experience the effects of sin on our life. Jesus did not have to experience that because he had never sinned. He walked around with the goodness of God and, and with all of our favorite, all of our favorite stories of Jesus talk about the power of God. He walked around with the power to, to make the water stop moving. He walked around with the power to heal illnesses, to, to correct deformities in people. Jesus walked into this world with all of the power of God and with that power, he overcame sin. Living with temptation, he did not sin. And for that reason, he doesn't face the same dilemma that you and I face. Jesus did not face death because he had never sinned. If we go back to Genesis chapter 3, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are told of this tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden and the fruit of it. God told them, it said, if you eat of this, you will surely die. If you sin, the consequence is death. Yet Jesus never had to deal with that. So here we have an individual who is God in human form, and he lives in this world with no separation from God, with no shame like you and I experience from our sin, and no sense of self. He came here to serve us, to love us because of his love for us. But there's a problem in the story, is Jesus had to walk this world with sinful people. And some of those sinful people gladly accepted him. Just like us, if you're a Christian, you're a sinful person who has accepted Jesus. That's all there is to you. And some of them did, but some of them hated him. Specifically, what I like to call the religious elite of the day. The Bible usually calls them by three names, either the Pharisees, the Sadducees, or the scribes. And those are basically like denominations of Judaism. And they hated, they hated Jesus. Why? Because they were controlled by sin. Now, if you know about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, that sounds like a weird thing to say about them, to say that they were controlled by sin because they were the most moral people in the world. There's not a person in here that lives your life even as close to morally perfect as they did. But even in their morality, even in all of their rules, they lived their life with sin. Because we see those characters of sin, characteristics of sin in them. We see that they wanted the authority that belongs to God with this, this sense of pride. We see in stories of the Pharisees that they were deeply shamed by the sin in their life. We see most of all that they lived with a separation from God. And then all of a sudden, God walks into their world. So the separation between them and God turns into animosity, but between these religious elites and Jesus Christ turns into anger because he challenges their authority and because what they find is that God's commands don't line up with their moral rules. Isn't it horrible when you come to church and you, and you realize what God commands and what God cares about does not line up with what we think morality should be? And they experience this for the first time, and so they hate Jesus. And if you read the Gospels, most of the Gospels are basically the story of Tom and Jerry. You guys know Tom and Jerry? Tom is a cat, Jerry is a mouse, and it's this cartoon that lasts for like 190 hours, and it's just Tom chasing Jerry trying to catch him, and he never can. 
And that's the story of the Pharisees and the Sadducees with Jesus. The whole story of the gospel, they're trying to trap him into something, but they can never catch him. Jesus gets out of every impossible situation up until the point where one of his own, Judas, betrays him with a kiss and sells Jesus to them for 40 pieces of silver. And at this point, this is in Matthew 27, they capture him and they take him and they have court in the middle of the night. There's an old saying you guys have probably heard. My parents used to tell me, nothing good happens after midnight. You guys ever heard that? Why is that? Because something about darkness just makes us want to do bad things. So you know when they capture Jesus and they take him, they're like, let's have court. It's 2 a.m. You know they're not up to any good when court is happening in the middle of the night. And what they decide is they decide to get rid of Jesus, to get rid of their Jesus problem, this person that challenges their sense of importance. They must kill Jesus. But there's a problem. They can't kill Jesus. They don't have the authority. See, at this time, Israel was taken over by the Roman Empire. And the Romans exercised complete authority, specifically authority over executions. So to kill Jesus, they must get the Romans to do it for them. And they think it'll be pretty easy. So that's where we're at in Matthew 27. They've taken Jesus to the Romans. This is going to be verses 11 through 14, telling us the story of what they do with Jesus. And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. And when he was accused of the chief priests and the elders, he answered nothing. Then said Pilate unto them, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? And he answered him for never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. So let me break down the scene for you of what the Bible is saying here. They have Jesus. They've had a kangaroo court in the middle of the night, but they have no authority to do what they really want to do and kill Jesus. And so first thing in the morning, they go down, marching down to the Roman governor's office, and they drag their prisoner Jesus with them. And they come in front of this governor and they start telling him all of the things they feel like Jesus has done wrong. They call Jesus a revolutionary. Jesus is a threat to Rome. He claims to be a king. He claims to do things that only God can do. And they demand action. Mr. Governor, what are you going to do with this man? The governor was a man named Pontius Pilate. And I think they thought this would be easy because Pontius Pilate was known for being extremely ruthless. To him, killing a Jew would mean nothing. But as he began to question Jesus, he, he ran into a problem with what they were doing. See, the accusations against Jesus did not seem to match what he observed in Jesus. These, these angry, bloodthirsty people bring this man to uh, Pilate, and they call him a revolutionary. But what Pilate observes is Jesus' humble submission to authority. They say that this man claims to be a king, and then Pilate looks at Jesus, and he says, he looks very humble to me, not someone who claims to be royalty. They claim that Jesus is dangerous, and Pilate looks at him and says, he doesn't seem dangerous. And as they accuse him, he stands quietly. And what Pontius Pilate has a problem with is this man does not match the profile of the kind of person they are claiming that he is. And he has a bit of an issue with what to do with Jesus in this moment. He is uncomfortable with what they are asking him to do. So our first take-home truth, if you've got your bulletins with you, there's an outline in there. If you'd like to fill that out, that will help you keep up with our main points. Our first take-home truth up here on the screen is this, is that one prisoner could not be condemned. As Pilate looks at Jesus, he's like, I can't find where he's done anything wrong. He says that. He says, this man is innocent. 
You're bringing me a prisoner trying to get me to execute him and he has done nothing. I find no fault in him. But Pontius Pilate has the problem. The problem that he has is that there is an angry mob of people who want this man killed. Yet he has an innocent man before him that he cannot pronounce judgment on. And so Pilate tries to figure out every way that he can to get out of this. First thing he does, he sends him to another judge. They send him back. He tries arguing and reasoning with the crowd and telling them that he can't do this. They still demand action. And so Pilate comes up with the scheme that is the main point of what we want to look at today. The, the scheme of how he thinks he's going to get out of this situation. We're still in chapter, tw or, uh, chapter 27 if you've got your Bibles open. Let's start in verse 15. Now at that feast, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would. And they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will you that I release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? For he knew that for, uh, for, he knew that for envy they had delivered him. Skip down with me to verse 20. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude. Let's read that again. That's important. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the two will, ye, will you that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said, uh, saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all said unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? And they cried out more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, and that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See you to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then released he Barabbas unto them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So to understand what's happening here, you need to understand a little bit of history. This happens at the time of Passover. And if you're not familiar with Passover, what Passover was, it's a Jewish holiday still celebrated by Jews today, which they celebrate an event in Exodus. In the book of Exodus, all of the Israelites are captured and enslaved in Egypt. And God sends a man called Moses to demand of the Pharaoh, of the king of Egypt, let these people go. And as Pharaoh uh, refuses again and again, God brings upon these people 10 different plagues. You've probably heard of those. And the last one, God sends the angel of death, and this angel takes the life of every firstborn person in Egypt. That would include the Israelites. But God gave them a special instruction and said, if you will kill a lamb and you will paint its blood above your door, the angel of death will pass over you. Your family will not be harmed. This was the final straw that allowed the Israelites to be released from Egypt to go start their own country. And so every year, the Passover feast would celebrate the fact that God had protected them, that God had taken care of them. Now, to an occupying force, this might present a problem. Once a year, there's a religious holiday where these people celebrate the fact that our God will kill our enemies. That might be a bad thing if you're trying to lord it over them. This is a time when people would start to talk about how powerful God is, how God can save us from any situation. And so the history doesn't tell us why, but here's what I think. I think Pontius Pilate was trying to keep the peace. He knew this was a time when, when the Israelites would be more likely to revolt. He knew this would be a time when, when the Israelites would remember how they had overcome one oppressor and now maybe they would want to overcome the Roman Empire. So here's what he does. He gives them a little bit to keep them from taking a lot. 
So what he does at this time to appease the crowds and to appease the people is he will let one prisoner go. And he thinks to himself, I've got a prisoner that they won't want to let go. I give them a choice. They can let this Jesus person go or they can let Barabbas go. Now, what the, word, what the Bible says about Barabbas is Barabbas was notorious. You guys know what that word means? Notorious means that everybody knew him. Let me ask you a question before we go any farther. How many prisoners are there in federal security prison that 75% of us would know who they were or what they had done? Maybe half a dozen, a dozen maybe. Like you've got to do something really bad for everybody to know who you are. And so when the Bible talks about Barabbas, we're not just talking about some guy that was arrested for jaywalking. We're talking about somebody who had done something really, really bad. Matthew doesn't tell us what he did, but other places in the, gospel tell, in the Gospels tell us that Barabbas was a revolutionary who participated in a riot or an uprising in which he had committed murder. This was a conspiracy theory freak who in his conspiracy theory had tried to overthrow the government and in doing so had killed people. So our second take-home truth is one prisoner in this story deserved to die. So what we know about him is that this Rome occupying force was unpopular. He had been involved in an uprising against it and he had killed people in that. I tried to think, what is that like for us? Like, like who could we compare to Barabbas? This would be what we would call a domestic terrorist. Got a picture coming up. Some of you may recognize his face. Almost everybody will recognize his name. I don't even like his picture up, but it's, it's important for us to understand Barabbas. This is Timothy McVeigh. And many of you know him as the Oklahoma City bomber. Timothy McVeigh wanted to overthrow the U.S. government because of some actions in Texas with some cults. And he decided the best way to do this was to start a revolution by blowing up a building in Oklahoma City. This event took the place or took the lives of 169 people, 19 of them only children. This is the worst of the worst of our society. This, this is an insurrectionist who committed murder. And so when you think of Barabbas, don't just think of some prisoner. Think of Timothy McVeigh. They're guilty of the exact same crimes in different time periods. And so here's what Pilate does is he asks them, who do you want? Do you want Barabbas the murderer? Or do you want Jesus the innocent? I can let this, this killer go. I can let this crazy man go. Or I can let Jesus go. Who do you want us to let go? And it says in verse 20 that the, chief, the priest and the chief priest walked around the crowd and they began persuading the crowd. Tell him we want Barabbas. Tell him to keep Jesus. What was one of those characteristics of sin? Is that sin desires sinful companionship? Desires people to sin with us? And so in their hatred, they walk around and they stir up the crowd and say, we hate Jesus enough to, to let Barabbas go so that we can kill him. And so when Pilate asked, who do you want? Do you want Barabbas the murderer or do you want Jesus, the guy who calls himself a Christ? What does that even mean? And the crowd cries out, we want Barabbas. Now, j just to think about Barabbas for a second, this is the greatest day of his life. Barabbas sat in prison with a dilemma. He had committed the crime. He had committed the sin. He's sitting in prison waiting execution. And not any execution. The worst execution ever known to man. Crucifixion. 
And within crucifixion, what they do is they nail you to a tree and you suffocate sometimes over the period of three days as you hang there and you bleed out. And when you die, they leave your body there to rot in the sight of everybody for weeks and months until you are so decomposed that your body just falls down on the side of the road. Barabbas is waiting that. Barabbas, Barabbas has been... Um, Accused and convicted, and Barabbas deserves that. But, but it all suddenly changes when Jesus shows up. It all suddenly changes when Jesus shows up. When Jesus shows up, suddenly Barabbas is free. And he's free to go and do as he pleases, he, he's free to walk away from the consequences of his decisions. So, our next take home truth is a prisoner who deserved to die was set free. And then immediately after that, a prisoner who deserved to be set free died. Now, don't miss the significance of the relationship between Jesus and Barabbas. When, when they brought Jesus before Pilate, what they accused him of is this is a revolutionary. This man wants to overthrow the Roman government. He is a danger to Rome, but he was innocent. Barabbas, however, though, was a real revolutionary who really was a danger to Rome, who, who really did want to overthrow the government. Jesus was accused of blasphemy. Uh, Jesus was accused of denying who God was. But yet Barabbas lived his entire life in blasphemy. And so as you look at these two, it is very clear that what Jesus is accused of is what Barabbas had actually committed. But at the end of the story, Barabbas is free and Jesus is led to his death. Uh, this, is, this is more than a story about two guys that lived 2,000 years ago. See, this is not just a story about Barabbas getting to go free. This is, this is a story about me and you. Uh, Donna sang this morning. It was not planned. Her song, exactly the point of our message this morning. This, this is not a story about Barabbas going free. This is a story about us going free because of Jesus taking our place. I want you to reread the outline. It's up here or you've got it in front of you. But I want you to reread this. But instead of using the word one prisoner or a prisoner, I want you to use the words your name, whatever your name is, and Jesus. L listen to the points of this story. Jesus could not be condemned. And Brian deserved to die. Brian, who deserved to die, was set free. And Jesus, who deserved to be free, died. This is a story of our sin. We're all waiting on a death that we cannot escape. We're all sitting here just expecting to one day pass away, and that's the end of it, until, until Jesus shows up. And he takes our place, and he takes our death upon him. And because of that, you and I, we get to walk free. Jesus, in his own way, says to you and me, I volunteer as tribute. I will take your place. And we think that Jesus died for the sins of Barabbas, that Jesus died because Barabbas was a revolutionary, because Barabbas tried to overthrow authority. And we look at ourselves and go, I'm not as bad as Barabbas, I'm not as bad as Timothy McVeigh. I've never blown anything up, never murdered anybody. I've got some sins here and there. But you and I, we are just as much of a revolutionary as Barabbas was. If you go back to the story we led last week, read last week, original sin, the sin nature that resides in all of us, the very core of it was what? Satan tempted Eve with, if you sin against God, you will be like God. You, you will know good from evil. You will take God's authority. And so when we sin, when we sin, we are revolutionaries trying to overthrow the authority of God, trying to overthrow his right and wrong. And for this, each of us will die. 
Real encouraging message this morning, isn't it? But we all will. Your heart is going to beat a certain amount of times, and then it's over. And since you've sat here, your heart's been beating. You're going to live a certain amount of days, and yesterday is gone. And one day, we will die. And if we die without somebody coming to rescue us, somebody to take our place, we will spend eternity, eternity apart from the love and the goodness of God. And this is the dilemma that we fall under until Jesus shows up, until Jesus walks into our world. And this is the reason, reason we worship. On your notes there, there's, there's some words, and I want you to write these words on your heart. It says, Jesus in my place. And I want this to be the answer to every question you have about faith going forward. When you have a question about faith, you can answer it with these words, Jesus in my place. When you ask yourself, why do I come here and worship? Because Jesus took my place. When we ask ourselves, why do we have hope? Why do people walk around without worrying about later, worrying about death? It's because Jesus took my place. Why do I come here every single week? Why do I waste an hour of my week in a church building? Because Jesus took my place. Why do I serve when there's no payment? Why do I serve when nobody seems to appreciate? Because Jesus takes my place. Why do I go to funerals of Christians? And although people are sad they're gone, there seems to be this, this sense of joy and hope at those funerals. Because Jesus is in their place. And why at my funeral will there be a sense of joy and hope? Because of Jesus in my place. And to understand the entire scripture, to understand the story of Barabbas, to understand our own story, there's two things that we must understand. Number one is my rightful place is deserving of death. When you look in the mirror, I hope that you know, not just as some theological something that somebody wrote down that you have to remember. I hope that you know that you can look in the mirror and you can look at yourself and you can look at your sin and you can look at your problems and you can say, my place, what I deserve, what I deserve is death for what I have done, for the way I have sinned against God. That, that is the first point, the first step to coming to faith in God, understanding your brokenness and your selfishness and your separation. And as soon as you can understand that, that makes the second point, something that we worship and celebrate, is that Jesus took my place in death to set me free. Not because he had to, but because he loves you. There's an old song that, that we sing sometimes. It says something to the effect of, when Jesus was on the cross, I was on his mind. And because of his love for you and his desire for you to be set free, he is moved to the cross where he is flogged, he is nailed to the cross. He is stripped naked. He is shamed in front of the world for you and me. And there he suffers while people laugh at him and, and while they cheer at his death because of the things that I've done in my life, because of the things that you've done in your life. So let's read about Jesus on the cross. If you've still got your Bibles open, slip over to verses 50. We're going to read 50 through 53. Jesus on the cross, he's been there for about six hours. Verse 50 records this. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saint which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared to many." As Jesus is on the cross, he suffers all of these things on a cross that was probably designated for Barabbas, on a cross that really belonged to me and really belonged to you. 
And Jesus hangs there up until the point that he is exhausted in death and he cries out. The Bible here doesn't tell us what he says, but in other places, that last time that he cries out, Jesus cries out the words, it is finished. If you look at the actual Greek word of that, that's an accounting term. You guys know when you go and, and you pay something off. Remember last year we paid off the church and we had the note burning ceremony and they put a big stamp on a piece of paper and we burned it. You know what that stamp said? It said paid in full. We don't owe anything else. And when Jesus cried out what we translate, it is finished. In the original Greek, it is an accounting term that would be stamped on somebody's bill that says paid in full. And Jesus defeated sin in that moment. He defeated my sin and he defeated the punishment of that. <clears throat> All because he loved us enough to die for us. And there's proof of that in the scripture because everybody dies. Like you can be a really good person and you can sacrifice your life, but it doesn't take care of my sin. So how do we know that Jesus' death took care of our sin? The scripture continues to tell us what happened here, the power of his death. Of course, we know that Jesus rises from the dead three days later. That's what we'll talk about next week on Easter, which by the way, I hope you're all here for. But Jesus also, Jesus, or the Bible also tells us some stories that may not make sense to us. First thing it tells us is the veil was torn. Now, if you don't know what that means, in the temple, there was a place in the temple called the Holy of Holies, and that was the dwelling place of God. And within that, that temple, God stayed in that dwelling place. It represented his separation from us because of our sin. But the moment that Jesus died, that veil rips open as God bursts out of there. You know why? Because our sin is paid for. And we don't have to be separated from God anymore. And then as soon as that happens, there's a giant earthquake. The entire earth shakes because of the death of Jesus Christ. And I love this. The first time I heard this, I go, I don't know if I believe that. And it took me a second to realize what I was saying. The graves of people opened. What, what's a grave a symbol of? It's a symbol of death. A grave is where we take our loved ones and we leave them for the last time. And it's a symbol of permanence of death. Like all the people I love, sometimes I go visit them. They're right where we left them. And they'll be there next time I go and the time after that. But, but when Jesus dies, these graves open up. And after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, these people who were dead walk out of their own graves and they go show up back at their houses. Can you imagine what a day that would have been? Sitting around eating, Somebody just walks in the door. Hey, what's up? I left you in the graveyard four years ago. Like, like there's, 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 no, there's no understanding this. But what it tells us is the power of Jesus that in his death secured life for us. In his death secured our ability not to be separated from God. And what you need to know today, Liv, if you want to start to make your way up here, what you need to know today about the power of Jesus in his death is that he didn't have to die for you, but he chose to. Because somebody was going to die for you. And he would have rather it been him die for you than you have to experience eternity without him. I asked you some questions earlier. Why do we come to church? Why do we serve? Let me ask one more question. Why would today be the day where you quit running from God? Why would today be the day where you finally declare your faith in him and give your life to him? And the answer is this, is because we can look at Jesus and I can know my sin, and I can know my punishment, but I get to see Jesus and I get to say Jesus in my place. And that's all there is to it. And if today you're struggling with that, if you're struggling with your relationship with God, if you just don't know where your salvation is, I would love to talk with you and pray with you. But today is the day. Don't leave here the same way as you walked in. Let's stand and worship together.